if you will grab your Bible and find your place in Luke chapter 9 this morning, we're going to continue as we do every Sunday in our series in the Gospel of Luke. We have been in this series for a number of weeks. I think today is the 41st or 42nd message, and we are just now starting the ninth chapter. So find your place in Luke chapter 9, and we will be in the first six verses this morning. As you are finding your spot there, I want you to hear from Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. There, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then verse 27, it goes on to tell us, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. As we read those verses there in the creation story, we see that they reveal to us that humanity was created in in part to perfectly reflect the person and the power and even the purpose of God. While we know that Genesis 3 comes on the heels of Genesis 1 and 2, meaning that sin has broken what God created, it did not eliminate the purpose of God or the plan of God that he had there in creation. And so what we see is that men and women and boys and girls all bear the image of God. We all bury, bear the likeness of God. Therefore, we are responsible for reflecting his glory. And even as sinners who are broken because of sin, we still bear that image of God. We still have the responsibility to reflect his goodness and glory in this life. Let me illustrate that with a story. During the World War II battles there in the Pacific Ocean, a sailor in the United States Navy serving on a submarine was stricken by acute appendicitis. Man was near near death. The nearest surgeon was thousands of miles away because they're on a submarine in the middle of the ocean. And so the sailor had a friend there on the submarine, a man by the name of Weller Lipes. He was a pharmacist's mate. This pharmacist's mate was taking care of him and was keeping his temperature or monitoring his temperature, and he found that it rose to 106 degrees. The the man was literally about to die if he didn't get an operation. So Lipes said to his stricken buddy, he says, I've watched doctors do this operation. I, I think I can do it. I've never performed it. I've seen it done. I've been in the OR. I've been there when surgeons were performing it, but if I don't do something... You're going to die. What do you say? Obviously, the sailor consented to the surgery. And so in the wardroom of the submarine, the patient was stretched out there on a table beneath a single floodlight. The mate and the assisting officers dressed in reverse pajama tops masked their faces with gauze. The crew stood by the diving planes to keep the ship steady. The cook boiled water for sterilizing. A tea strainer served as as an antiseptic cone. A broken-handled scalpel was the operating instrument. Alcohol was drained from the torpedoes so that there was antiseptic. And bent tablespoons were used to keep the muscles open. After cutting through the layers of muscle, the mate took 20 minutes to find the appendix. Two and a half hours later, the last stitch was sewn just as the last drop of ether gave out. And then listen to this. 13 days later, this sailor is back at his job. It's an incredible accomplishment. It was incredible how this this 
a pharmacist's mate, an untrained medical person, untrained in the sense that he was not a surgeon, was able to, to perform an appendectomy. This was a great feat, greater than all of the other appendectomies done by surgeons. Not because it was better, but because it had been done by an untrained person. Someone who saw a surgeon do it. He had been in the operating room many times. He had seen that, and then he replicated it in his own fashion, which was not as good as the surgeon, but just as effective. I believe this story helps us understand an unfathomable promise Jesus made to his disciples shortly before he left the earth. There in John chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. The apostles, the early church, believers from that day until the final day can do greater works than Jesus, not because they are greater works, but because of who they are, frail, sinful instruments empowered by the Holy Spirit. When you think about what Jesus calls us to do as Christians, to, to take his gospel and to share it with others, we obviously know and we obviously believe Jesus can always do it better than us. The angels of heaven could take the gospel and proclamate the gospel much better than we could. And yet, God in his providence, God in his sovereignty, God in his wisdom has chosen to use a bunch of ragtag, sinful, frail, weak, many times timid and distracted Christians to carry out and to further his mission. Makes no sense to me. Why he would do that. Why we would, he would hang the future of eternity on the backs people like you and me as we move forward in luke's gospel we see that jesus is going to send out his 12 he's going to send out these 12 men who would become the apostles or at least 11 of them would become apostles one would be a traitor before he sends them out or, or before he ascends and, and gives them ultimate control of the church he sends them out two by two to to, to do ministry to preach the gospel to heal uh, physical and spiritual needs in people li people's lives. As we've learned so far, Jesus is Lord over all things. We, we've seen even the last couple chapters of the of Gospel of Luke here that, that Jesus is Lord over nature. He's been there on the Sea of Galilee, and when it became a violent storm, he calmed it. We've seen that his lordship over demons. He gets to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he meets that demoniac who's, who's not just possessed with one demon, but legions of demons. Roman legion is 6,000 soldiers, and so perhaps there's 6,000 demons possessing this man, and Jesus, with just his voice, commands them to be cast out. Jesus is Lord over sickness as he's healed many people. He's even raised the dead, as we have seen even last week. Jesus possesses all power over all things. This, however, is not all that we have learned. Uh, one of the beautiful things that I hope we've never missed as we read these stories is that as Jesus is healing and, and meeting these physical and spiritual needs, he is the one who's pursuing. Now, there are some cases where people are coming to him, like the woman who's, who's lame and, and Jairus last week whose daughter is about to die. They're seeking him, but Jesus is also seeking them. Jesus is pursuing people. He loves people. He wants to transform the lives of people. And so what we find is that Jesus, our God, is on mission to reach and to change the lives of people. 
And he wants to empower his people to go and to do likewise, to go and to do even greater works than what he's done. Look with me in Luke chapter 9. Let's read the first six verses. Then I want to kind of give some context of what's going on and then share with you uh, three principles that we can draw from that uh, as we are to live out the gospel today in our own world. Verse 1, Luke says this, And he, that's Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. These verses that we've read, these verses that we're going to dive into this morning, describe, as R. Kent Hughes says in his commentary, the apostles' pre-Pentecost taste of the miraculous ministering power, the greater works, perhaps, that would characterize their ministry after Christ is gone. So it's a snapshot of what is to come even greater down the road. We might look at this scene as a dress rehearsal for the post-Pentecost. There when Jesus has ascended to the Father and the Holy Spirit has come. And we know what happens in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preaches and mighty things begin to happen. This is a dress rehearsal for that. It reveals to us the principles of gospel ministry necessary to fulfill the Great Commission. I believe it's important for us to first acknowledge what I just said earlier. Maybe you missed it, but God is on mission. We need to catch that. We need to highlight that. We need to make sure we understand that God is on mission. We talk a lot about missions in the church. We talk a lot about missions in our church. Trevor, Nate, and myself will, a week from tomorrow, get on a plane. We'll fly over to Puerto Rico, and we'll see some mission work going on there so we can make a decision of how we want to and how we will as a church engage in the gospel work there on the island of Puerto Rico. So we talk about us doing mission, but the only reason we talk about us being on mission is because we have a God who is on mission. I love how Jesus defined his mission when he was speaking to Zacchaeus, that wee little tax collector. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus summarizes the mission that he came with. That is to seek and to save the lost. Those who are steeped in sin. Those who are dead in, in trespasses in sin. Those who have no life in them. Jesus came so that they may have life. This description, however, is not just an isolated statement. You see, the Lord's mission is on full display from Genesis to Revelation. In both his activities and his command, over and over again, we see God moving toward, as I've been saying the last few Sundays, stepping toward humanity. And in doing that, he's instructing us from Genesis to Revelation to join him in that mission. God is on mission. And so we see in these verses that we're looking at this morning, we see principles for gospel ministry. What we don't see is a prescription for gospel ministry. In other words, the specific instructions given here by Jesus to these 12 apostles or who what would become 12 apostles applied uniquely and exclusively to them. They're not a pattern for all times. 
Uh, they're not something that when we read these verses here, we think, well, this is how I need to prepare for my short-term mission trip. In other words, next Monday, a week from tomorrow, when the three of us begin to move toward the airport early in the morning, we're going to take stuff with us. Amen? I'm not going with just what I'm wearing on the plane. I'm going to take a bag. I'm going to take some cosmetics. I'm going to take some deodorant because it's hot. And these guys better take those things too. <laughs> I think I have my own room. I think they're bunking together, so maybe it doesn't matter. But I'm going to have to ride in a car close by to them. They better take some of that stuff. So Jesus is not giving us a prescription for gospel ministry. That's isolated and, and, and segregated to these guys in that specific time. But we do see here principles for us. How do we know it's not a prescription? Because if we were to go to Luke chapter 22 in verses 35 and 36, Jesus reverses what he says in Luke 9. He tells them to take a nap stack. He tells them to take money. He tells them to do the exact opposite, which then becomes more of a prescription for what gospel ministry is today or from that moment till today until the time he returns. But for these men in this situation, they were to not take anything with them because Jesus was using this as a teaching tool to prepare them for post-Pentecost gospel ministry. So this morning, we're to learn from our passage that believers are given power. We are given authority. We're given these things to preach and to minister to people. And so we want to look at some principles for gospel ministry. Because as believers, we are able and we are expected to do greater things than even what Jesus did during his life and his ministry on this earth. I want to share with you three things this morning. The first thing I want you to see is this, trust the Lord's provisions. If you will, look back at verse 1 and 2. G, or Luke tells us, Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Jesus' selection of the twelve was partially fulfilled when he sent them out. In doing this, Jesus is partially fulfilling the very reason that he called them to himself. Having been taught by Jesus, having been armed with the knowledge of the secrets of God's kingdom, this, this understanding that others didn't have, he unleashes them to go and to proclaim the message of the kingdom and its Lord. Twelve's mission here served as an apprenticeship for their ultimate mission seen in the Great Commission. Great Commission comes in different formats. We see it in Matthew 28. We see it in there at the end of Mark. We see it in Luke 24. We see it in Acts chapter 1. I believe the Gospel of John even has a Great Commission statement in it as well. And so we see this as Jesus is preparing to ascend back to the Father. He commissions his church to go and to preach and to make disciples. Look at verse 3. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And so the twelve here were to proceed unencumbered by possessions. Instead, they were to depend on Jewish hospitality. They were to trust in the Lord's provision because they already possessed everything needed to carry out and to accomplish their mission. They didn't need those things for this particular task. Jesus had given them Power. Dunamis is that Greek word that we love to quote so much. He's given them authority. 
Excusia is the Greek word there. Uh, he's given them authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Uh, when we speak of power, it's talking about the capacity. It's talking about the energy. It's talking about the force that they have as God's representative, as his missionary, as his ambassador. And then as we couple that with authority, that's basically saying this. You have all of this power, the capacity and the energy and the effort to do it, and you've got my authority the license, the badge to go and do likewise. We like to have badges, don't we? Badges will get you into places that other people can't get. Friday, I was um, running a little behind. I, I, I was picking up a, a new item that I just bought. It was a, on a trailer behind my truck, and so there wasn't enough room for me to pull into the middle school to pick up my oldest daughter at 220 or 225 whenever kids get out. And so I had to park next door at the elementary school, Powhatan Elementary. And so since I'm on the school board, I have a badge. I can walk into a school. I got all the credentials and all that stuff. And so I parked at the school. I knew no one was going to tell me you can't do that because my kids go to school there. I know all those people. And plus, I'm on the school board, right? <laughs> right? Gives you, it's got a badge. And so I walked across. I didn't worry about somebody coming up to me and saying, sir, uh, who are you and why are you on this campus? Right? Because I had the credentials. It, it makes a difference to have the credentials. And so when I came back to pick up the older two kids, I didn't have to run another errand, didn't have enough time to go home and drop the trailer and come back. And so I couldn't get into the elementary school. And, and the parking with all the, the, the moms and the dads getting in there, I mean, that's some funky stuff when you're trying to get in there. And I can't imagine pulling a 30-foot rig behind through that little windy U-shaped parking lot. So I parked in the side parking, parking lot where all the teachers did. And I did this same exact thing, but this time I went in the school, Right? I walked up there. Jan, you work at the high school, so you know what I'm talking about. If you got a badge, you get in. I walk up there, and I can't open the door. I don't have the key, but you know what I do? I push the button. I say, hey, Cindy, this is James. And she goes, he hits the button, and I come on in. So I got my kids. I went to the gym. I got all them. I didn't have to talk about it to anybody. I just walked out because I had the credentials to do that. What Jesus here is doing for his apostles, these 12 men that he's sending on mission, he's saying, I've given you power and I've given you the authority to use this power for my kingdom work. Man, think about what Jesus has given us in our Christian lives, the provision he's provided us. The power and authority Jesus has bestowed upon the 12 enabled them to overcome any obstacle, any situation that they would face. Like Jesus, they would be able to heal the sick. Can you imagine as he sends them out to do what he's done, the things that they're going to encounter? I mean, he sends sick, he's seen sick people and lame people and blind people and dead people and leprous people. He's seen all of that. And what do you think they're going to see? The very same thing. And Jesus says, I've given you power and authority. Now go and do greater things than I've even done. Today, as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we understand and own the commission our Lord has given to us. I want you to think about this. Like the 12, we have been sent out into the world, in a world that's in desperate need of Jesus and his gospel. We've been sent out to preach. We've been sent out to minister to people who are dead and hurting in their sin. And we do all of this with the full power and with the full authority of Jesus Christ. We have the badge. 
We have the credentials to go and to speak into people's lives and to tell them that there's a God who loves them and that there's a God who can change their life, that there's a God who wants to change their life, that there's a God who will meet their physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. And here's something else. As we go out and do that, God's going to meet our physical and emotional and spiritual needs. Trust the Lord's provision. Trust the Lord's provision as we seek to live on mission for him. As we commit to live this gospel, where we live, where we work, where we play, God's spirit will empower us to boldly and lovingly call people to faith in Jesus Christ. And so Christian, I want you to know this morning, you've been sent with the gospel. So trust the Lord's provision. There is sufficiency in the Lord. There's a second principle I want you to see. Focus on the ministry in front of you. Focus on that ministry that's right there in front of you that he's given you to do. Look at verse 4 again. Jesus says, in whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. As the twelve trusted the provisions of God, they were better able to focus upon the task that he had given them, right? Right? What happens if you're always focused or, or, or always distracted by not having enough? Well, you're not focused on what you need to do. One of the things I love about being a Southern Baptist and being a part of the Southern Baptist Convention is, is that we have nearly 5,000 missionaries around the globe who don't have to come off the, the mission field uh, once a year for a couple months to raise funds. We as a Southern Baptist Convention, a collection, a fellowship of churches, 40 to 50,000 strong, we send our money through the cooperative program, right? Cooperative program, working together so that we are funding our missionaries. They have no needs, which means they have no distractions. They can single focus on the task of taking the gospel to the people who are far from God in faraway places. As these 12 went out to preach and as they went out to minister to people, ministry opportunities were right in front of them. So one of the things that, that Jesus is trying to help them understand is they're just walking through life from village to village. Ministry opportunities are always in front of them. So in order to prepare these men for the incredible ministry opportunities, Jesus here instructed them to take nothing with them but to trust the Lord's provision in every place. Jewish hospitality would meet this need. So as they entered a new area and were invited to lodge with a family, those men were not to seek better accommodations. Instead, they were to be content. Put it in today's terms, they were not to be concerned about whether or not there was a full breakfast at the hotel, right? They were not to be concerned about how hot the shower was going to be or how strong the flow from the shower was going to be. And I will add, those are important things when you go to a hotel, right? Who wants a lukewarm bath or a cold bath? Who wants to uh, sit under a shower head where you're wondering if you should uh, move around so you can actually get wet in that shower because it's so, so small of a flow? These men were not to worry uh, about or to be concerned whether or not the hotel had a hot tub or a pool. They were not to think about how many reward points they were building up with that particular brand and hotel chain. No, the 12 were not being sent on some sort of vacation. They were being sent out on mission. So they're to focus on the task at hand. 
It's different when we do go on vacation, right? If my family and I are going to the beach, if we're going to a tropical resort or something, I don't know about you, but I'm looking for fine cuisine. I'm looking to make sure that that resort has great restaurants because if I'm putting my money there, I want to know I'm getting a good return on that. So I want fine cuisine when I go to the resort. I'm looking for a beautiful surf. I'm looking for an exquisite pool. But here's really what I'm going for in a a resort. How nice and how big is the gym? I mean, that's really one of the most, I'm weird like that. One of the most important things for me is like, I want to know, is it like the little bitty closet that you kind of get in there with three other people and can't really do much? Or is it full on, we can get some work done in this place? That's important to me. Why? Because I'm on vacation. And when I'm on vacation, I want to vacate the hustle and the bustle of normal life. I want to relax and rejuvenate. And so I'm concerned about things like that. But if I'm on mission for the Lord, I'm not concerned about those things. I'm not concerned about what the accommodations are like or if maybe there's something better down the road. And so the mission the 12 were sent out on was not a vacation. It was work. There was a task at hand which required their undivided attention. So he's telling them, focus on the ministry right in front of you. It was there in the homes. That's where the ministry was. He's saying, Peter and James... John and Andrew and you guys, when you're out there and you're going door to door and, or village to village and, and you're invited into a home and you're invited to stay there, that's where the ministry is, right there in that home, that Jewish family, right? Paul tells us in Romans 1 that the power of God is, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, who? To the Jew first and to the Greek. And so they're being sent to the Jews. Matthew tells us that they were not to go to Gentiles, but they were to go to the Jewish people in this commission. And so Jesus is saying, be focused on the ministry right in front of you in that Jewish home. Share the gospel. Love them to Jesus right there, right there in that village as you're staying in that home. Minister to them. Minister to the homes that are around that that home, that that house where you're staying, In, in that city, in that village. Place your life there and minister the gospel. You see, there were people who desperately needed to hear the gospel and to be drawn to Jesus, and that was to be their focus. Today for us, as we think about our contribution to fulfilling the Great Commission, may we realize that we too must focus on the ministry that's in front of us, right in front of us. That ministry largely resides in the places and among the people that you frequent the most. The phrase that we use a lot is, we want to be kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, where we live and work and play. Those circles of influence that we have. God has not just randomly allowed you to fall into those circles. No, in his sovereignty and in his providence, he has placed you there. I've told you as a church many times that you don't live where you live because you got the best deal. Or it has the best layout of a house. We may think that's the reason we chose that house. Or that neighborhood. Or that piece of land. No, you're there because God in his sovereignty orchestrated such a thing so that you could be there for the next person that is next door and on the street across the way. You're a gospel missionary where you live, where you work, and where you play. And so let that be your focus. There's people who desperately need Jesus in your circles of influence. Let that be your focus. Let's not be distracted by lesser things. So Christian, you've been sent with the gospel. You've been sent with sovereign purpose in the gospel. So focus on the ministry that's in front of you. There is purpose in God placing you there. Sovereign purpose. 
And God in his providence has placed you there for such a time as this. There's a third thing I want to share with you this morning. Move on when there is no receptivity. Look what he says in verse 5. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now, before you jump ahead and you say, well, you're a pastor, you've already done this twice. I know you're going to get to the today. And so does that mean we burn rubber as we leave? Probably not necessarily. Do we do donuts in their front yard as they don't receive the gospel? No, do not do that, right? You still got to live in that neighborhood. You still got to live in the Powhatan community. You don't want to do those things. But what Jesus is saying here is this. In case of a hostile reception, in case things don't go too favorably for you, what I want you to do, boys, is to shake off the dust of your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus, again, is not suggesting that, that they were to act in a hostile manner, nor is he suggesting that we do that. Rather, it was a dramatically gracious warning to those who rejected the kingdom message. If you were in small group last week, when we, <clears throat> excuse me, when we were talking about the, the woman at the well and Jesus coming to Sychar and, and, and speaking to her, she was a Samaritan. We talked about how Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. That was even part of their discussion. They would go around that. And perhaps in your small group, you even talked about the pious concept of when a Jew would go through Samaria or another land that was pagan or Gentile, they would shake the dust off their feet in a symbolic fashion of saying, we don't want to bring that taintedness into the land. We don't want to bring the judgment that they are under because of the fact that they're in sin to become part of what is in our land. So Jesus is playing on that, and he's saying, when they don't receive you, you shake the dust off your feet as a gracious warning, as a way to tell them, as a prophetic warning to make people think about their spiritual condition. And we got to believe that many people would have seen this, many people would have heard this, many people would have sensed this, and even some brought to grace as a result so Jesus here instructed these men to make this gracious demonstration toward those who would reject their message. Yet Jesus didn't instruct them to quit and to come home. Jesus is not saying here, fellows, it's going to get hard, and when it does get hard, just come home. No big deal. It's over, right? Preach until the people say no, and then just come home. That's not what he says. He says, preach, and when they don't receive you, shake the dust off your feet, in a sense, warning them, graciously warning them to help them understand that there is a spiritual condition within their own hearts that needs to be checked, and hopefully, providentially, they'll be brought to the gospel. But keep on going. Move to the next village and the next opportunity. Today, as we seek to live out the Great Commission where we live and we, where we want to live it out in the places where we work and the places where we play, as well as working together as a church to spread the gospel abroad, Jesus' words here challenge us to keep moving, to keep advancing the message of the kingdom. Many times I've been overseas, whether it's on the continent of Africa or in Asia or uh, the Caribbean somewhere, and we're sharing the gospel and we're going house to house or shop to shop or, or just walking along the streets, what you'll find is a varied response to the gospel. And never have I been on a trip as such and been sharing the gospel in such a way that I saw or, or received a negative response, a no, a closed door, and just said, all right, fellas, let's go back to the hotel. 
No, we go to the next person. Because we understand that this person may not be receptive to the gospel, but the Lord is working somewhere. And so I'm going to move from that person to the next person and the next person, and I'm going to continue to keep my focus on preaching and sharing and demonstrating the gospel and the power and the love of Jesus and allow the Lord to take care of who comes to faith in Jesus. So these words remind us to expect resistance. It will and it does come. So we shouldn't become disillusioned. We shouldn't lose heart. But instead, we should move on to the next person, to the next family, to the next opportunity. We continue to pray for those that we've shared with. We continue to, to ask the Lord to move in their hearts and their lives. But we cannot stop sharing and moving to the next person until that person who rejected us come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's not what we're to do. We're to preach and to share and to continue to pray that per for that person as we move on to the next. Move to the next person. Christian, you've been sent with the gospel. And so I want to encourage you to keep advancing it. Advance it where you live. Have you thought about that? Advance it where you work. Is that something you're, you're contemplating, you're concerned with? Advance it where you play, the people you recreate with, the, the, the circles of influence. I mean, here's a way to look at that. Many of our kids are involved in activities. It's a dance team. It's a softball team. It's a football team. It's some sort of extracurricular outside opportunity. Maybe it's the Boy Scouts or something like that. And you're involved with other parents, other families. Think of that as a mission opportunity. You're not just there because little Johnny wants to be on this team. You're there because God in his sovereign providence has placed you there for such a time as that with those particular people. Leverage it for the gospel. Leverage it for the gospel. As believers, we've been called and sent. There's a mission there. We've been given power and authority to preach and to minister. Have you ever wondered why the Lord has ordained this strategy for advancing his kingdom? I mentioned this earlier. It's clear to us that Jesus could do it so much better than we, Right? Jesus was holy and perfect, and he never sarcastically responded to the disciples. Well, in my humanity, and you in your humanity, if you were in Jesus' position and watching the disciples fall on themselves all the time, we would have been like, God, can we not get better people to work with? Thankfully, God never responds to us that way. But we understand our frailty. We understand the disposition that we have, that we are broken people. So obviously we know Jesus can do gospel ministry so much better than us. The angels can do that. I mean, think about it. In Luke chapter 2, when Jesus is born and he's lying there in that manger in Bethlehem and the heavens open up and they begin to declare the glory of God, that's all the angels have to do. Amen? Here's some, here's some uh, rough characters on the backside of Bethlehem tending the sheep. Those men were not typically the best and most trustworthy people of society, and yet the angels open up in the heavens. They declare the glory of God, and what happens? Those men go to seek Jesus. The angels can preach the gospel better than you and I. With one difference, we've experienced the gospel. They've never experienced it. They have a head knowledge of the gospel. They, they know exact, They probably understand it theoretically more than we do, but they've never experienced it. 
And so they can't preach it the way we can because we know what it's like to be dead in trespasses and sins. We know what it's like to be hopeless and cut off. We understand what it's like to not have life in you. And you're just kind of groping around and moving around in life with nothing of God in you. They know nothing of that. So we can talk about what it means to be brought from death to life. We can talk about what it feels like to have our sins removed as far as the east is from the west and the fact that God remembers them no more. They can't preach that. So maybe God in his wisdom does know what's going on after all. And he set us out there to preach the gospel because we can say, hey, boys, you need to believe this, not because I've been told to tell you this, but you need to believe this because it's literally changed my life. Man, we've been sent. That's what Jesus is telling us here. In his sovereign wisdom, God has staked the future of heaven on redeemed sinners. He's modeled gospel ministry before believers, and he's empowered believers to go and to do as he has done. Greater works. You remember pharmacist mate Weller Lipes? He had never performed surgery before. The man was not a surgeon. He had not been trained as a surgeon. He had been trained in pharmacology. He was a man who understood medicine and drugs and how they could be and should be used in different situations. Lipes, however, had participated, more than likely, I just got to believe this, he had participated in several surgical procedures. What do you mean by that, Pastor? I thought you said he wasn't a surgeon. Well, sure, he was there, but he wasn't the guy with the scalpel. If you've ever had surgery, you know what I'm talking about. He's that person that stands at your head and whispers really or talks really soft to you as they shoot something in the IV and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's that guy, right? He's the nurse anesthetist or he's the anesthesiologist. That's probably his role in the operating room. So he had been in there watching over and caring for the patient to make sure there's enough anesthesia, not too little so that the person wakes up or feels pain and not too much so that the person actually dies. And so as he's in the operating room, He's watched the appendectomies. He's seen the surgeon cut. He knows where to cut, and I have no idea where to cut for an appendectomy, right? It's just somewhere in this area. But he knows that. He knows to cut softly, probably. You don't want to cut too deep because you go too fast, too deep. You cut things you're not wanting to cut. So skillfully and slowly, he begins to cut, and he's doing everything that he's seen, even though he's never performed it before. It takes longer. It takes uh, more ether, more time, all of those things because he doesn't have the expertise or the ability, but he's seen it done. He's watched it modeled, and now he's replicating that in his own life, and that's what you and I are called to do when it comes to gospel ministry. Can Jesus do it better? You better believe it. Can the angels of heaven do it better? You better believe it. Can someone else do gospel ministry better than you? Sure, but that person doesn't live in your neighborhood. That person doesn't work at your job. That person's not in the classroom with you, with those people that you're around every single day. Can I share the gospel better than some of you? Probably. But I don't live where you live. I don't work where you work. I don't play where you play. You're tasked with that. You've been sent to that place and to those people for such a time as this. So this morning, as we think about what it means to be sent, as we think about what it means to be heaven's ambassador, may we trust the Lord's provisions May we focus on the ministry that is right there in front of us. And may we keep moving and advancing the gospel. Because God in his sovereignty is uniquely and he has strategically placed each of us within our own circles of influence. And he wants to leverage those places for the gospel. 
He wants to use us as a church to share the gospel abroad, to do more work abroad, so that people who are far from God in faraway places hear the message of the gospel and are brought to repentance and faith. Today, as a Christian, I'm going to ask, will you recommit yourself to evangelism? Will you recommit yourself to missions? This morning, will you begin to pray for, will you begin to engage those in those circles of your life who need to know Jesus Christ? Can you see their faces this morning? Can you call their names? Maybe it's the neighbor that lives next door to you. God drives you nuts. Right? We all got neighbors like that. I don't. We got great neighbors where I live. Great neighbors. Why do you live there? What's their name? How many times have you talked to them? For years, we've had a, a, a program, I guess. Many of us did it many years ago. It's kind of waned as, as all things do, but Bless Every Home is, is something that many still are engaging with in our church. And so it's a way that you pray for your neighbors in a certain parameter or a certain perimeter, I should say, and you're praying for them and you're seeking to talk to them, engage them, and you want to serve them, all of that to earn the opportunity and earn the right to speak the gospel into them, to see them come to faith in Jesus. Then you want to disciple them. Can you see their faces this morning? Can you call their names? Are you calling their names before the Lord? Maybe this morning in our time of response, in just a moment, you need to come to this altar and just lay their name before the Lord and say, God, I, I want to pray for, for John. I, I want to pray for, for, for Julie. I, I want to pray for, for my neighbor next door. I want to pray for the person who, who I work with. I, I want to pray for, the, for this kid that's in the class that, in, in sixth block. And, and Lord, I, I want to pray for them. I want to lift them before you. And I want to ask that you give me boldness and encouragement and, and the strength. I, I know I have a power and authority and help me live that out because I want to see so-and-so come to faith in Jesus Christ. We've been sent. Today, this, in this room... Those listening to us online, not every one of us is a believer here, right? I doubt that all of us are in relationship with Jesus. And so this morning, we move to a time of response. The message for you is not, hey, go share the gospel with, with, with so-and-so. It's first, receive the gospel yourself. You can't go and share something you've not yet received. It kind of goes back to, to, to the angels, they haven't experienced the gospel, and if you've never come into relationship with Jesus, you haven't experienced the gospel either. It's cerebral for you. You've heard it. You might understand it on some level, but until it actually begins to take root in your life, you have no ability to speak life into others because you need to first experience it. So this morning, the invitation, the response time for you is, would you come and say, Pastor, I need to give my life to Jesus. I understand I'm a sinner. I understand that sin brings condemnation on my life. I understand I'm separated from God. I need, I want to be forgiven and made new in Jesus Christ. That's all you need to do this morning. Would you come? We've been sent, and God has sent his son to us. Would you receive him this morning? Let's pray. Father, thank you that that is exactly who you are, a God who loves us enough to send your very own son, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, to take upon himself 
the one who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what Paul says. And we thank you that you've done that for us. Because you love us. I pray this morning that those who are not in relationship with Jesus, sitting in this room watching us today, would come to saving faith. Lord, may their response this morning be yes to Jesus, yes to the gospel, repenting of sin. I pray for believers in this room as we've talked about and, and seen the stress in this passage of being sent as the 12 are sent. Help us to see that we too have been sent. God, I pray that we've been able to, to visualize the people in those circles of influence. Maybe it's a neighbor, it's a co-worker, it's someone that we know that, that, that has a child that is connected to our child. We see their face, we see their name, and Lord, may they become a burden that's on our heart. It leads us to pray and contend with heaven over them. Commit ourselves to engage in gospel conversation to see them saved and disciple. Lord, may we be serious about that. Father, I pray even that we as a church family, as we are engaged locally here and our neighbors, people in this county, help us to be concerned about the nations as well. Lord, as we look to what 2023 will be for us as a church and the ministry opportunities, the mission opportunities that are before us, I pray that, Lord, we'd be willing to say yes to the next mission trip. Lord, even the individual has never been overseas, never been on a plane for, I pray their yes would be on the table and just waiting for you to lead them in that direction. So God, whether it's Puerto Rico, whether it's South Asia or some other place, help us to be a church that doesn't just talk about missions and doesn't just pray about missions and doesn't just even give to missions, but God, may we be a people who go on mission here and there among our neighbors and among the nations, we pray. In Jesus' name. So in this response time, Lord, have your way. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.